Miracy. And Sharon, you know some of my colleagues and you can ask them. If they come out with a different answer, I want to know about it. Not because I want to know who said it, but I want to know where I'm falling short of where I need to do better because that's my objective every day. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead is Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large, helping C-level executives clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by blending the art and science of leading with intention. I'll be talking with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the influence they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy work environment for their employees. We'll learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their own human journey. My guest today is Matthew Lockheim. Matthew is the president of Obrick, a fourth-generation family-owned business that has been shaped by the family's values, which include that of putting people on par with profit. I first met Matthew when he was an MBA candidate at Stanford Business School when I was teaching leadership there. I've worked with the executive team at Bobrick for a couple years now, so I've seen Matthew evolve as both a person and a leader. In my experience, Matthew brings intellect, heart, and deliberate action to everything he does in leading the organization. I'm especially looking forward to hearing Matthew talk about his leadership journey inside of their family business, where, as you can imagine, leadership dynamics can be complicated by family relationships. I'm also looking forward to Matthew describing his perspective on the role vulnerability plays in leading a fearless organization. That's taking the title of Amy Edmondson's great book on building psychological safety in organizations. As you listen to our conversation, listen for how Matthew's family's values of integrity and embracing differences have become core to Bobrick's operating practices and to his leadership. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you, Sharon. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the very generous introduction. It's very kind. So just to get started, Matthew, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about Bobrick and then about your current role? Sure. We are a commercial bathroom product company. We've been around since 1906 when we started manufacturing soap dispensers and liquid soap. We've since expanded to other categories, uh, stainless steel accessories, toilet partitions, baby changing stations. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the Koala Care brand, for one, and we're constantly innovating in this space. Uh, for example, we are launching a touchless toilet stall that you can wave your hand and it opens like uh, open sesame. So that's a bit about the company. And I oversee manufacturing, operations, sales, marketing, almost all parts of the company, minus the Koala Care brand that um, has had a general manager for the last. 20 plus years. Great. And I remember, I think you told me that a very early product from the company was featured in kind of a famous place. 
one of our earliest inventions was a it was a soap dispenser, which was patented, uh, I believe, it was in 1908, and it was for a Pullman car, a train car, and having a soap dispenser that could be mounted either to the wall or to the sink allows it not not to move around on, on a train car. I love that story. So uh, let's just dive right in. I want to start by asking you to describe your leadership or like your guiding principles as a leader. I think when it comes to leadership, the most important thing is to align with your, with your team around goals and essentially to empower them, to accomplish them, and to either determine whether they have the right resources, they have the skill sets, they've got the capacity in terms of time to see them through. But it's really alignment and empowerment. And ultimately, if things don't go the right way, it comes down to correction or ultimately counseling and accountability. But it's not my job to do their job. And in order for us to lead successfully as a team, we need to foster consistent and transparent communication. That's great. You described empowerment as one of the key principles for you. And I'm wondering, what's an example of how you empower the members of your own team or others in the organization? Yeah, the best example really is an issue I'm working with one of my uh, factory managers whose factory we've simply outgrown. And we've been unable to find a replacement or another, another factory within our budget because we had constraints. It couldn't move beyond 10 miles of our current factory. Well, once you remove that constraint, then they become empowered to find more creative solutions. And by having a candid discussion around what is holding us up on any given project, I think we're able to come to a better solution. So I'm going to go back and ask you a little bit more about how you think about yourself as a leader and tell me what are the characteristics that you think define the way you lead? One of the hallmarks of good leadership is clarity. If there isn't clarity around the goals, that creates confusion, that that creates chaos. Secondly, I think what's incredibly important to me is humility. I certainly am willing to admit what I don't know. I tend to hold my truths lightly. I try not to have very firm convictions because I recognize that when you move up an organization, your information is limited because you have a greater breadth of responsibility. So can you tell us a story about an example of that, leading with humility in that way? Yeah, I think the answer is to lead by hypothesis and to let your team do the work and do the investigation. I may have a point of view, I may express my point of view, but I'm certainly not going to rush to any judgment. And and my expectation is to not confirm my bias. That's certainly an expectation that I want to communicate. I try to communicate. And a recent example, we launched a new packaging of a product and we got lots of complaints from our customers. And while I thought that the packaging was flawed, in fact, it was merely a subset of the customers who were complaining. And so rather than just say, we need to go back to the prior version, to trust your team, follow the process, allow them to come to the conclusions. Sometimes you need to slow down and collect your facts and not respond too quickly. Uh, I, I know that's one of the things, Sharon, that I'm working on. Sometimes I tend to react. I may overreact. And so that's my impulse. That's my tendency. And so just to be constantly reminded about being humble is a way for me to counteract 
my poor tendencies, which is to rush to judgment. So it helps ground me as a leader to make better decisions and to allow my team to do the work because they're the ones who are closer to the customer. They're the ones closer to the product than I am. I'm removed from it. And I always look forward to what they're going to recommend, especially since, you know, it may surprise me. So I love hearing you describe the principles that guide your leadership. If I were to ask your team members to describe your principles, what would they say? I think when you get to my level in an organization as the president of the company, one of the biggest parts of of my role is not me leading, but it is empowering them to lead and to really be more of a coach. I'm always open, you know, to any discussion. So I certainly think um, openness, empowerment, those are a couple of themes that are really important to me. I certainly want to, you know, foster collaboration and bring out different points of view. I certainly hope that's what they would say. And Sharon, you know some of my colleagues and you can ask them. If they come out with a different answer, I want to know about it. Not because I want to know who said it, but I want to know where I'm falling short of where I need to do better because that's my objective every day. That's great. So you mentioned that you're in the role of the president. And I know recently you moved into that role following your dad's long tenure as he's moved into the CEO role. I'm curious if you could talk about how this transition has challenged you as a leader and where you've stretched yourself. It's a great question. I think when, when we began that transition, a lot of the discussions were around boundaries. And it was sort of negative goal setting, like, I own this, you own that. And that boundary setting may have been helpful at the outset, but I think wasn't necessarily the most productive. And that as my father and I are having more fearless conversations and being candid, I think the questions are not, what do I do and what do you do, but really what can we do together? What longstanding beliefs about yourself have you had to face as you've moved higher and higher in the organization, as you've ascended? Anything that you thought was true about you that you've learned is changing or has shifted? That's a really good question. When I was more junior in the organization, I loved doing the analysis and and doing the problem solving. And I always had a tendency to want to roll up my sleeves and get to the right answer. But as I've moved up in the organization, I've recognized that even though that passion exists, that I cannot do that as much anymore because one, it is enabling and certainly diminishes the feelings of the employees who are responsible for it. So I have the tendency to want to do things on my own. I think my team is courageous enough to tell me when to step back and to trust them. My job on a daily basis is coaching my team, not doing the work for them and not telling them what to do, but again, focusing on the goals. That's great. A couple minutes ago, you mentioned the fearless organization, and I know that's been something that you've been embracing over several years. In embracing these fearless organization principles, what changes have you made to how you lead? What have you learned about yourself and what changes has that led to? Yeah, we embraced the fearless organization concept after we had a nearly catastrophic um, software implementation. And three years later, we're now stronger than we were at the outset. But when we reflected on what went wrong, we missed the warning signals. There were individuals, there were team leaders who had concerns about the implementation. And rather than listen to them, they were ignored. And they also, in some ways, feared, feared the leadership itself. 
So that is how we got there. Now, in just a couple of days, we're doing a switch over to a new version of the software. I led a town hall and we had a fearless talk. I talked about the elephant in the room, which was our PTSD from our implementation in 2019 and being able to explain to the company why this software implementation was going to be different from the prior ones. We did an all hands meeting for everyone in the company, including all those on the factory floor to discuss the implications of implementation. We're talking about transparency, you know, transparency goes both ways. To be a fearless organization, you expect people in, in lower ranks to be able to you know, bring issues up and not to be afraid, but it also you know, has to happen from the top down. The outcome of that meeting, which was only two days ago, was such that the level of confidence, despite our uh, experience in 2019, in my opinion, could not have been any higher. I hope it goes well. And certainly going into it, I'm far more confident today than I was three years ago. And that is largely due to the fact that we have embraced the fearless organization concept. And so what are, just for those who haven't tried that kind of approach in an organization, what do you think a couple of the key leadership lessons for you have been about how to be a more fearless leader and promote a more fearless organization? Yeah, I think the most important thing is storytelling. In one example, we simply shut down a project because there was a very critical concern that one of the team members raised, and it was raised to leadership, and it was essentially deferred indefinitely until we could resolve that problem. But it came from an employee's concern. The employee raised the issue, and the leader who accepted it and brought it to senior management, um, they deserved praise. And I'm always looking for more examples as a company of where people are being fearless because it's those stories that build confidence in the company. It's not putting up a placard that says we are a fearless organization. That's great. Thanks for the story. I'm going to just slightly switch for a second and ask you if you can tell us about a time that you made a leadership choice that felt counterintuitive to you or that challenged a closely held belief. Yeah. Most recently, certainly in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the rise of diversity, equity, inclusion and employee resource groups, you know, we decided to embrace the idea of creating these affinity groups. And my initial reaction to that was that by focusing on our differences, we would, in essence, be dividing the company and creating silos within the organization as opposed to, um, you know, creating a, a sense of community and cohesion. I think it actually has resulted in the opposite. In fact, we've used the employee resource groups to one, really promote the narratives, promote the stories and the experiences of those groups so that those who are not members can understand their challenges. One of the leadership principles that means a lot to me is one around authenticity and, and being able to be yourself. If certain employees are unable to be their true self at work, they're unable to do their work with confidence. And you need to have confidence to be able to do your job well. And for me, there was you know, certainly a period of my own life where, as a gay man, I was in the closet. And when I think about uh, when I came out, I certainly noticed that, A, by being my true self, my overall effectiveness was more important. I recognized that we didn't have a LGBTQ employee resource group. So the funny part is actually, I would say probably most of our employees probably don't know that I am gay. 
and I don't make much fuss about it. Nevertheless, I did feel it was important, you know, given the fact that we were talking employee resource groups, that if I didn't address the absence of an LGBT group, that it would be a missed opportunity both to represent that community, but also to lead authentically. That's great. Thank you. So on the topic of challenges, what do you think your biggest challenge has been as a leader? One of my challenges is rushing to judgment. I think the other one is still having an aversion to conflict and to having difficult conversations. And that rather than you know grabbing the bull by the horns and um, addressing the issues, I instead pursued another opportunity. I left the company for a brief time. I was not enjoying my work. I did not feel challenged or respected by my manager. And I wasn't willing to have that difficult conversation. And what do you think got in the way of that? What were your concerns or worries at that time about raising the concerns? I think the concern was that I was entitled. I had graduated from business school. I had worked as a management consultant. And by trying to accelerate the process that I was not being respectful of the path, for example, that my father took, and maybe I was, you know, trying to leapfrog or take a different path. And so that may have gotten in the way. And it's also a difficult conversation when you have a bad boss, right? So for me, in looking back at the experience, I think it's important for me to not be a bad boss, but to be a fair boss, <laughs> to be one that is um, empowering, removing obstacles, providing clarity, and as a last resort, counseling and having some degree of accountability. But that's always a last, last, last resort. So thinking back over the arc of your leadership journey from business school forward, all these many years, what's a pivotal moment that really helped shape your leadership? The moment where I take the most pride in is when I was given a project to develop a premium toilet partition. And why that project was so, I know you're laughing, (laughs) and it's going to sound absurd, but that project, you know, I was given a design by, you know, a very prestigious architecture firm of what they thought the product ought to be. And I did my own field research. I literally got into private class A office buildings in New York City to determine what the trends are finding ways to get around security, taking photos of product from every which angle. But it was an experience that taught me to question assumptions. And just because a very prestigious architecture firm says a product should be this way, you really sometimes have to do your own work. And it's sometimes dirty and it's sometimes sneaky. And I learned a lot from it. And in doing it and developing this product, it was incredibly rewarding because I had to challenge my product development team. And I challenged the company. You know, I I pushed, um, you know, I certainly challenged our VP of manufacturing on the manufacturing location, the VP of engineering on what the product would look like, uh, the VP of marketing in terms of creating a new brand, in terms of the VP of sales saying that we're going to have a limited or a different distribution strategy. Just about everything I did challenged the conventions in one way. And for me, that's what made it so rewarding. And I hope that that story will make its way sort of around the company so that more employees feel like they can push boundaries and challenge conventions. It was probably one of our most successful brands and product launches 
for a long time. And through that, we were able to then make further headway into other acquisitions and launch new products. But it all begins with me sneaking past security to investigate high-end toilet stalls. So, Matthew, where did that courage come from? Where did you find the courage to challenge all those groups, all those assumptions, and all those experts? Yeah, that's a great question. When I left the company for that period of months, I was working on a startup with a friend. And when you're in a startup environment, you're often questioning every assumption. And so it allowed me sort of to come back and just question everything. Had I stayed in the company and assumed that role, that responsibility, I may not have actually been so successful. So um, it's interesting that in our discussion, Sharon, on the one hand, I'm saying, gosh, when I left the company, that was a failure on my part because I wasn't willing to have that challenging conversation that may have enabled me to stay and maybe have gotten to that role. But looking in the rearview mirror and with 2020 hindsight, I now recognize that that experience may have been incredibly valuable to me because it gave me a different lens through which to, you know, to look at the work and the, and the tasks I have before me. And I think I hear in that story, just to connect a dot for you and me and maybe for our listeners, the seeds of your belief in the fearless organization and the importance of encouraging people to challenge upward and to not be worried about offending somebody or you know, not to be too worried about the risks in, inherent in that. Yeah, and, and really kudos to my dad, you know, because he was the one that empowered me a little bit um, to have those conversations. I've been told this, and I think it's probably true. That product was a success because of my last name and because of the fact that my dad at the time was the president of the company. So really what that means is, how is it such that every employee can act as if their last name is Lockheim? That to me is a real good test of whether or not we are a fearless organization. Oh, I love that framing, Matthew. That's really powerful. So, and it is interesting. I appreciate your raising that there's a certain amount of privilege that comes with being the son of grandson of great-grandson of the previous leaders of the company and knowing that it's a privately held company. But I, I guess given that that privilege exists for you, how do you extend that privilege deep into the organization so that people do feel they have as much right as a Lockheim? I think because my last name was Lockheim, I was empowered. And just by virtue of birth, to be able to challenge a convention. And as we discussed, the concept of the fearless organization, if we truly embrace it wholly, all employees will feel that they have the same authority, the same right to question management, to question and challenge the status quo in the very same way that I did. And even though my last name was Lockheed, I still didn't necessarily feel that fearless. I think it was the re-entry and that entrepreneurial experience that got me there and raising concerns, but also pushing and challenging the organization forward, I think we will be you know, far more successful. And it will certainly be our culture that will contribute to our success. So as you know, the name of this podcast is To Lead is Human. And I'm wondering when you hear that phrase, what does it mean to you? Yeah, when I think about what it means to be human. I think it means to be flawed. And so for me, it's recognizing that we're flawed. And if you recognize that we're all flawed and that it's natural for us to you know, make mistakes, um, the more that we're willing to embrace the fact that we are flawed, 
will lead to better decision-making and really create a more cohesive team rather than be an organization that is that is governed by a strong leader who is always right, because that is not human. Agreed. I think for many senior executives, it's really hard to admit mistakes or to be vulnerable. And I wonder what advice you might have, or maybe a story you could share that would help senior leaders understand that vulnerability isn't a sign of weakness and that having flaws or being imperfect doesn't make you a less effective and authoritative leader. Yeah, I think I'm going to answer with another story. I'm still growing as a leader. An example of of being vulnerable is asking for feedback. An example of being vulnerable is asking people, what narratives do you have about me that is getting in the way of our ability to collaborate? Because if we're able to understand those narratives, we're then able to identify where there may just be misperceptions. And I think more often than not, conflict happens not from actually true disagreement, but misunderstanding. And by by seeking feedback, by asking questions, we're able to unlock a lot of the obstacles uh, that are standing before us. And any idea where it is that you develop this ability to lean into your own vulnerability? You know, it's not the idea of being vulnerable. I think that the more confident you are, um, the easier it is to be vulnerable. And so I credit everyone around me and the the tremendous resources and advantages I've had, which have allowed me to be willing to admit mistakes and to entertain difficult conversations where someone is giving me, you know, constructive feedback. Thank you. I really appreciate your uh, digging deep to share these inner thoughts and feelings with us. The purpose of this podcast, of course, is to help others who are aspiring to be ever more human in the ways that they lead. And I wonder if you have a last thought or piece of advice to offer business leaders who, who maybe feel a little skeptical about this. For anyone who is skeptical about anything we discussed today, you know, be it inviting feedback or admitting mistakes, the only way that you can truly know whether it's successful is by trying. I don't think you can make an assertion until you try. The more um, vulnerable I've been, both in seeking feedback and being willing to admit mistakes, has created a culture of trust where others are willing to do the same with me. So. The onus is on the leader to set the example, and I would encourage whoever is listening to to give it a try and see how their team responds. And based on your own experience, what do you expect they will discover? I can say from my own experience that every time that I've had those challenging conversations, each time I, I walk away surprised by how well it went. It's one of those things where it's incredibly hard walking in the door, but uh, you walk out with a burden uh, off of your shoulder. And it's really the responsibility of the leader to set the example. Thank you so much, Matthew. I really appreciate what you've shared with us today and how willing you've been to tell your stories in service of other leaders. Please keep listening as I share some reflections on my conversation with Matthew.
Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. I hope you took a few good lessons away from Matthew's stories about his leadership journey and that there are at least one or two things you want to try yourself. As Matthew said, making mistakes is part of the human condition and we certainly can't avoid it as leaders. To make room for your own vulnerability to show up as a strength, not a weakness, you may need to re-examine any old beliefs you have about leader as hero or leader as always having the right answers. In this day and age, that's a high and, frankly, an unrealistic bar. Because information is so widely distributed across organizations, there's little evidence that the leader always has the best information across all parts of the business. So how could they have the best answer? In fact, I suggest to you the leader's main role is to bring together all the relevant information and people from across your organization so that you can identify and make the essential improvements needed. If you accept that your role is less about having the right answers and more about posing the right questions, you've already taken the first step. Let me offer you a few phrases you can add to your own leadership language that may start to change how your team discussions feel. Two questions and two statements. How did you come to that view? And what do you know that can help us make a better decision? And then, of course, I don't know. And I made a mistake. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. Thanks for joining us today. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead is Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you got some value from this show, please leave us a starred review and tell your colleagues about us. It really does help out. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making Making It. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. 
For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts. No shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.